Hello, welcome back to the Middling Along podcast. My guest today is a VIP in the world of menopause, and I'm slightly starstruck and very happy to welcome Diane Danzebrink to the podcast. Hello and welcome. Hi, Emma. Thank you for inviting me. So you're a uh, campaigner and founder of the non-profit organisation Menopause Support, and your main campaign is Make Menopause Matter, which I imagine most of our listeners will have heard of. But for people who don't, perhaps haven't kind of come across you or don't know what menopause support is about, can you talk about the the three aims of, of the campaign and, and a bit more about what menopause support does, what it offers? Yeah, absolutely lovely. So sort of how it all came about is really probably similar to many people who are driven by a passion to make change is my own personal experience. Mm. So my own experience of menopause was pretty grim, to be honest. I had surgical menopause back in 2012, so quite a long time ago now. And unfortunately, I didn't have the right um, information or guidance prior to my surgery or after it. So So you um, had no no idea what to expect at all. No, so nobody, I knew that, you know, kind of, I basically, I knew I wouldn't have periods anymore, but I didn't know that there were 30 plus symptoms of menopause. Nobody explained to me how different surgical menopause is to a natural menopause. Mm. Nobody explained to me how vital it was for somebody in early menopause. So I was only 45 at the time to have hormone replacement therapy. And unfortunately, what I found out to my cost is that the symptoms I knew nothing about, which were the mental health symptoms, the things like anxiety. For me, I started having panic attacks, Mm. absolutely crushing anxiety, um, completely destroyed my self-confidence completely and totally. And over a period of weeks and months after my surgery, I became an absolute husk of the person that I used to be. Cutting a long story short, unfortunately for me, it took me to a point in my life where I came very close to ending it. Mm. And it was at that point that I was incredibly fortunate to have a supportive husband who basically took over and demanded help from um, our GP practice and I was very fortunate to see a GP who recognised exactly what was going on for me, took the time to explain to me that I had completely run out of oestrogen and how important oestrogen is for brain function and why I was feeling like I was feeling and how she could help me with that was to offer me hormone replacement therapy. Now, I was quite scared of that because I'd heard all Mm. the scary stuff about it over the past 20 years. But she explained that things were very different now, that we had what's referred to as body identical hormone replacement therapy, that it wasn't all oral tablets, that I could... For me, I only needed oestrogen. Well... She said I only needed oestrogen. As it turned out, it was more complex than that, but we won't go into that now. But that I could have that via my skin rather than as an oral tablet. 
she talked to me about all the risks and benefits and I started it the same day. And I'm always a little bit cautious when I talk about how much improvement I felt, how quickly, because I really could not have got any lower than I already was. And everyone's experience is different and everyone reacts differently. So you can't go by kind of somebody else's individual story anyway. Absolutely not lovely. And I think so for me, because I was so low, Mm. any improvement was something that gave me hope. And over the next couple of weeks, I did start to feel better which did give me some hope for the future because I had felt completely hopeless. And initially it was relief, but then I just felt really angry yeah. because I thought, look how close I came to not being here. Could have been very different. And I wonder how many other people have experienced something similar or how many other people out there just feel like they're going mad, which is exactly what I felt. So I started to research and that's essentially um, over a long period of time. It didn't happen overnight, but that's essentially how menopause support came about because I started to realise that there were far too many people out there suffering in silence. And Mm -hmm. I just remember turning around to my husband one day and saying, if I ever feel like me again, I'm going to make damn sure I do something to change this. And you have a medical background. So I have a so therapist um, by profession, Mm -hmm. but I also have now I have professional nurse training in menopause, too. Okay. so it's essentially what I started to do initially was literally to offer support to women one to one, one at a time. (laughs) (laughs) But it became very clear very quickly that the need was absolutely overwhelming. So I started menopause support on my kitchen table, um, which was just me um, creating a very, very basic website, sharing my story and then as much factual evidence based information that I could get my hands on. Um, And then I decided to start a community group online that now supports just over 25,000 women. I'm delighted to say that there's a team now that look after that group. It's not just fantastic. me. And that's on Facebook, if people are it looking is, for yes. it. Yep. So we still offer these one-to-one menopause sessions, which essentially is sort of 45 minutes where somebody can either talk to myself or my colleague, Steph, who is a nurse by background, also has professional nurse training in menopause. And essentially our job is to listen. Our job is to listen to what people are going through because very often a GP doesn't have the luxury of time. 10 minutes and you're in and you're out. (laughs) Yep. So we have the time to be able to listen. We then also have the knowledge to be able to talk individuals through what their potential options are for managing their menopause And if they want us to, we will then write an introductory letter for their GP. Because very often, if people are not feeling their usual selves, they're not feeling so confident, etc. Actually having that having that supportive conversation and having that letter to share with the doctor makes a big difference. They can advocate for themselves. 
Exactly lovely. Yeah. So we also offer educational awareness training to businesses and organisations. And as you said, we're a not for profit organisation. So essentially, we are tiny, you know, there's, there's three of us that work within the organisation, we have four volunteers, but we have an enormous impact. And that's the point really is the campaign which is so menopause support is the home of the make menopause matter campaign the campaign i launched in parliament in october 2018 um, and i launched it with three very clear aims the first is to have mandatory training for all our gps in menopause the second is to have menopause guidance in every workplace and the third is to have menopause included in the RSE curriculum in schools. Delighted to tell you that um, in July 2019, that was approved for England and it actually went on to the curriculum in September 2020, but it's not going to happen overnight. Mm. These things take time. So it will take time to embed into the curriculum. But we also want to see that for the rest of the UK. And for me, I would like to see it for the rest of the world, too, because teaching young people about menopause is an absolute no brainer. It's a complete win win situation because they will take that information with them throughout the rest of their lives, whether it affects them personally, to their partner, to a family member or to a colleague. And if we all have that information as young people, then hopefully that allows us to be more compassionate and supportive as we go throughout our lives. Absolutely. And you had some uh, a recent success as well around uh, prescription charges. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So that that actually that's that's not our success. That's really that's a combination of everybody who has sort of raised awareness and campaigned. But that was driven by an MP called Carolyn Harris. So I've met with Carolyn several times over the past few years. And earlier this year, she launched the Menopause Support and Services Bill in Parliament. And there was an APPG, which is an all-party parliamentary group, which myself and many others gave evidence to And they were set up really to look at menopause, healthcare, menopause in the workplace, etc. But it became clear for Carolyn that probably the first thing that she could address um, within Parliament was the changes to prescription charges. Mm -hmm. So what she actually lobbied for was free HRT for everybody in England. When it came to the debate, um, what the government agreed to was rather than for it to be free, they agreed that there would be a single charge annually. So that hasn't started yet. It probably won't actually come into force until sometime next year. But from next year, there will be a single annual charge for HRT. So for some people, they pay for it monthly. Mm-hmm. For others, they pay for it quarterly. So it could be a substantial dis- uh, yeah. Yeah, reduction exactly. in the amount that they You'll pay. You'll only pay year. once in future. Yeah. Right. That's amazing. I mean, it would be even more amazing if it was free, obviously. Um, do you think that they'll be continuing to push 
push that still further or, or I don't know because I mean you know it was a step in the right direction but I think the sort of the bigger achievement that came out of the work that was done over, over this year is that the government have now agreed to set up a menopause task force that's going to be co-chaired by Carolyn and um, an MP who is also a minister in the Department of Health called Maria Caulfield. Mm -hmm. So they're going to be co-chairing that. We are very much hoping, menopause support, very much hoping to be part of that. And I think that's sort of the bigger achievement is getting the sort of current sitting government to say, okay, we recognise that this is an area that really does need to be focused on and we're actually going to have a proper task force that looks solely at menopause care and menopause in the workplace and menopause education. So it, it, we're, it's, we're definitely moving the right way. There has been a huge <laughs> sea change, I, it, it seems, over the, the you know the yep. last... 12 months, you know, even in the time since I sort of set up and launched the podcast, just in terms of, well, so, so many areas, just in terms of general awareness. There was obviously mm. the Channel 4 documentary recently. Mm. Um, obviously, the fact that it is being, you know, discussed at the sort of in government, more and more books coming out every month, it seems, on this topic. So there's definitely, there's definitely a lot more kind of buzz and hopefully sort of reduction in the sort of the stigma and taboo around this and and as you say I think having also having that built into the curriculum having that sort of normalized all those little bits kind of start building and building don't they and, and then you know we're having more and more conversations maybe with our friends as a as a result of the sort of the documentary or as a result of the books that people have read and yeah I mean things have changed hugely since I first spoke out about this publicly which was towards the end of 2015 you know that was a really lonely place at the time because people just didn't want to say the word menopause out loud and for the first couple of years you know sort of it, it was quite a lonely place but certainly over the last I would say sort of the last two or three years, things have changed quite significantly. Mm. There's much more media interest. As you say, I think social media has played a huge part in the sharing of information, in community building, in people not feeling so isolated mm. and alone. And, you know, social media can certainly have its downsides, but I think this is definitely one of the positives is sort of sharing that information, is empowering people to actually make some informed decisions for themselves. But campaigning for change on anything, I always say to people, you know, you have to remember it's a marathon, not a sprint. It <laughs> takes time. You've got to be in it for the long haul. So yeah. every step forward is, you know, sort of a step in the right direction, but we've still got a long way to go. What um, what do you think kind of kept you going in those early days? You were saying, you know, it was quite a lonely place, feeling that sometimes you were probably knocking against a closed door. Mm. How, what, what sort of kept you kept you at it? <laughs> I think because from the from the very first time that I spoke about it on TV, literally from then, my inbox sort of just never stopped filling up 
with just heartbreaking experiences of people, problems with relationships, problems in the workplace, struggling with their mental health, struggling with their physical health. So the more I spoke about it, the more people kind of came out of the woodwork. And that just made me more and more frustrated, knowing just how many were struggling, and then sort of starting to speak to others who were willing to raise their voice on this and knowing that they were experiencing similar things with their inboxes being full, etc. And to be honest, the campaign, <laughs> the campaign was exactly a result of that email experience. So I was mm. sitting at my desk one evening, I was just about to kind of, you know, sort of sign off for the day and another email popped into my inbox and it just this ex- the experience of this particular individual just made me so angry. And I just thought, nope, that's it. We need a campaign. <laughs> and I sat there that evening and I wrote the change campaign petition. I didn't take any advice. I didn't run it past anybody. <laughs> it's like, I'm on fire. <laughs> I probably did it all wrong, but I just thought, no, this cannot be allowed to go on. And I just pressed the sort of send button and thought, you know what, if a few thousand people sign this, that will be amazing. And I think we're heading towards 170,000 signatures at the moment. And as I say, we've achieved having menopause included in the curriculum in England, which is in campaigning terms, absolutely amazing in what has been really a short space Mm, of time. It is incredible. So are you, do you have sort of a, a sort of particular goal in mind for, for 2022? So for us, we, so at Menopause Support, we have, we have a project um, that I probably shouldn't have even said we have a project because I can't really tell you anything about it. <laughs> but we have a project that we're working on that we're very excited about for next year. Um, And in campaigning terms, as I say, we will certainly be looking to have involvement in this task force. Um, I've actually already been in touch with the minister about this task force because I think what menopause support does is because we are completely independent of any other organisation, we are completely independent of any doctor essentially we are a patient advocacy Mm. organization so we do get to bring the patient voice and I think that's really important that really has to be front and center in all of these discussions and conversations on how menopause care needs to be improved how menopause in the workplace needs to be supported I think it absolutely has to be bringing forward the voices of those who maybe don't feel that they can raise their own publicly. And of course, we have to remember that there are those who perhaps would not feel in a position to be able to raise their voice. So I think we have to ensure good menopause care for the future for everybody 
and support in the workplace for everybody, not just those who, like me, Mm. have been driven to raise their voice. We have to remember that there's a lot of people that we are essentially representing, we're speaking on behalf of. So the campaign is absolutely sort of at the heart of everything that we do. If we sort of looked forward five years into the future what would what would your ideal state be where would where would we be five years into the future (laughs) I would love to say I would have left the menopause space completely (laughs) because the menopause space no longer needed campaigners Mm. you know I would love to think that in five years time we had a system in place where all our trainee GPs were taught the same module about menopause. So they all had the same education. It's staggering that doesn't happen to me. I know. (laughs) Um, And I would also, I would also like to see that for all our practice nurses as well, because Mm -hmm. I think very often women feel very comfortable talking to their practice nurses. They may have seen them in the past for other things. So I would like to see that. Um, I would also like to see more recognition in the workplace of just how important it is to have menopause as part of your diversity, inclusion, your health and well-being projects. You know, I often sort of I often say to employers, you have to think about all the aspects of this, not just about how this is affecting the individual, but also how this affects your organisation, what the ripple effects of that Mm. are. So it is a really common sense approach. I like common sense. And I would like for all young people um, in the UK to be taught, again, the same module so that they're all getting the same education because it, it's very sort of, it seems very hit and miss at the moment. It's It seems all to be left to each individual school. So mm. I would like there to be a resource that all teachers who are going to be tasked with teaching this have access to so that all children get the same education so that if somebody from Cardiff meets somebody from Glasgow or somebody from London and they get talking about this, it would be, oh, yeah, I remember that video presentation or whatever it might have been. Again, you know, for me, lovely, a lot of it comes down to common sense. And, you know, I often hear the phrase, well, it's just simply unworkable around anything to do with menopause, particularly with GP training. Things are only unworkable if you make them unworkable. Nothing is unworkable if you really want to do it. You prioritise it. Absolutely that. (laughs) Um, yeah, so, um, but we can't afford not to, I mean, you know, it's, it's growing cohort of, of women kind of coming into this stage of life and there's sort of the knock on impacts of not addressing it. Surely make the, make the, you know, if you want to make a business case for it, even mm. the impacts of, of not dealing with this as a health issue, mm. both for the physical and, and mental well being, And as you say, the ripple effects within families, the ripple effects within business, because more and more women kind of going into that age bracket now at sort of middle senior management, if they're dropping out of the workforce and all of the sort of the knock on impact of that, it's, it's too important not to prioritize. 
and also for the NHS too. Mm. You know, if you think about the amount of women who report that they've seen their GP several times or they've maybe referred to cardiology for palpitations or rheumatology mm. for their achy joints. It's expensive, right, for the worryingly NHS. For me, yeah, <laughs> worryingly for me, you know, psychiatry for mental health issues. And it's sort of all that is costing mm. GP time, it's costing referrals, it's costing the NHS. The NHS could be saving a fortune mm. if we used a common sense approach, but... Yeah, I go on a lot about common sense. It's not always prevalent in every discussion. So one of the other things that I was interested in um, was the sort of the impact of the the pandemic. Now, obviously, the campaign, the last 12 months, a lot has moved on. But do you feel in some sense that actually part of the, sort of the impact of the pandemic is that we've gone backwards because people weren't able to sort of have those maybe as easily get to see their GP or that they were mm. more isolated? Are you seeing sort of maybe more of a sort of a mental health impact from the people that you're helping? Yeah, I think, you know, sort of so obviously the pandemic itself has had a mental health impact. The isolation that people have felt because for some working from home has worked absolutely beautifully. For others, they've absolutely hated it. It's not been something that they've taken to. They can't wait to get back to their colleagues. Mm. And also for others, you know, the isolation from family and friends. Um, so that in itself has had an impact. But then the fact that actually for many, getting a GP appointment has been difficult. And that's because GPs have been overwhelmed. And also the fact that people haven't been able to actually go and sit down with their doctor and speak to them. It's, you know, sort of a lot of it is not even done as video calls. It's done as telephone calls. Mm. So that's been tricky for people. And then for those who do need a specialist referral, so for anybody who needs referring because perhaps of a complex medical history, so they need to be referred to an NHS menopause clinic, um, those waiting lists are huge mm. because a lot of the doctors and gynaecologists who run those clinics have been off doing other things as a result of the pandemic. So they've sort of been drafted back into other areas because of the pandemic. So that has made those waiting lists very long. And obviously that then results in more anxiety for those who are waiting. And as I'm sure you and your listeners will be aware, you know, we've seen this rise in cases of mental health generally in the population throughout the sort of 18 months of the pandemic. And of course, we know that mental health services are completely overwhelmed too. So what we find is that particularly with the group, there has been more discussion um, around mental health, not necessarily mm. related directly to menopause symptoms, but perhaps more, you know, kind of socioeconomic reasons. You know, the pandemic has had a huge impact on many people. Some people have been made redundant, et cetera. So it's a complex thing. And yeah. I think we always have to remember that everybody's menopause experience is individual. 
And there can be many different factors that are affecting it. And stress is, you know, kind of stress can make a difference. Yeah, can to compound the physical health. physical yeah. um, symptoms. Absolutely. And I do, I guess, th- speaking about physical symptoms, I think perhaps for people who aren't as aware of kind of menopause symptoms, the focus for them might be on the sort of the physical ones because those are potentially the ones that are better known or you know they're, they're sort of they are talked about in you know like a documentary or a or a sort of a sitcom where you know somebody will be making fun of the hot flushes or whatever mm. but but actually as you yourself experienced a lot of time it, it it is the more sort of mental health symptoms that that can be the the most debilitating So when we're talking about anxiety, I think it's really important to remember that there are some of the physical symptoms that can make people feel more anxious and Mm. affect their mental health. So if you're experiencing symptoms that you find embarrassing in a public situation, that can raise anxiety. But also the the symptoms we never talk about, the really taboo ones, what we call the genitourinary symptoms, things like increased urinary frequency or urgency, increased urinary tract infections, perhaps the vaginal or vulval symptoms, they can have a huge impact because if they are debilitating and if they're all you can think about, Actually, you can't focus on anything else. Um, You know, so I have I've worked with several women over the years who have actually left employment because they just simply cannot focus or they can't sit down. And they don't feel that they can raise it within the workplace. It's just too difficult. Exactly that. Exactly Mm. that. They can't they can't raise it because it's just too embarrassing for them personally. That wouldn't be the situation for everybody, but for Mm. them personally. And of course, if you're in discomfort all the time and sadly, not everybody is aware that those genitourinary symptoms can even be related to perimenopause and the reduction in estrogen, then that can have a significant effect on your mental health. So as I said, it's really, it's very individual and really can be quite complex. So it's really important. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important that people have time to be able to talk about what they're experiencing, because it can also be really emotional. Mm. Yeah. It's not something you can suddenly spew out in kind of five (laughs) minutes to like, and another thing and another thing in your GP's office, like you say, you know, people need that kind of support. They need to feel like they've got a safe space to talk about these things that are sometimes incredibly difficult to, to talk about, but you know, that they desperately need some help with. Exactly that. And, you know, as I said, the reason that, you know, the reason that I was driven to do it in the first place is because I would really have liked the opportunity to do that. But when I looked for it, it wasn't there. And the other thing that has is becoming, you know, sort of a bigger and bigger issue is that when people can't get the help and support they need from their local GP, and there are some there are some great GPs who have updated their knowledge. Um, and it's really encouraging to hear when people are having a good experience, mm. but many don't. 
And so consequently, they feel that they're left with no option than to go the private healthcare route. And of course, that's fine if that's your choice and you can afford it, but it can be very expensive. Yeah, it's so, outreach for, 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 I would exact, say, most people. <laughs> exactly that. And that's another reason why we wanted to offer what we hope is a much more affordable alternative. We can't prescribe in the same way that a GP can prescribe, but we can talk through all the options. We can write that introductory letter. And I would say, you know, sort of 90 plus percent time, um, we have very positive feedback, not just from the women who have experienced those sessions, but actually from GPs too, saying, thank you very much. That was really helpful. That really helped me to help my patient. So that's really encouraging too. It's fantastic. And I, I should say as well that on your uh, menopause support website, there is an absolute wealth of resources. I'll definitely uh, pop a link into the show notes and the uh, if people want to find your Facebook support group, which is also wonderful, that's also, uh, they, I think if they probably do a quick search on Facebook under menopause support, that should. Yeah, there's up. also a link to that on the website. Wonderful. Diane, thank you very, very much indeed for your time today. Um, Pleasure. It's an absolute joy to meet you. And um, I'm sure on behalf of women and girls everywhere, a huge heartfelt thanks for you know being that quiet voice that got louder and louder and louder and didn't give up (laughs) lovely thank you very much lovely it's been a pleasure to talk to you you've been listening to the middling along podcast do remember to subscribe to be notified when our next episode is live and why not visit the blog at www.middlingalong.com to sign up to my newsletter as well i do hope you enjoyed listening today if you did I'd be really grateful if you would consider leaving a short review as that helps people find the podcast and helps get it noticed. Hope you can join us next time. Goodbye for now.